this is Trina Green-Brown with Parenting for Liberation, and I'm so excited and honored to be joined by Mia Birdsong, who is the co-founder and director of Family Story. She also has an incredible, incredible um, TED Talk um, about families and poverty, and so the TED Talk is called The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True, and if you haven't seen it, you totally should. Um, Emmy is just all around incredible. And if you want, just Google her because there's just so many things that I could talk about, but we're going to talk about it live. So welcome Mia to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored for you to join. Um, I was just thinking about like when we first met actually in person and it was at the transitions lab with the movement strategy Mm -hmm. center. And I realized that when I finished that, um, that lab, it's like a, a gathering of different folks from across social justice movements really thinking about how do we transition from a world of domination to a world of regeneration and connectedness and community. And when we finished that session together, I think we were there in Oakland for about a week, I actually wrote a, po- um, wrote a blog called um, My Commitment to My Son was to like say yes and to parent for liberation. And it kind of is a part of the... Um, origination story and that was in 2015 and here we are (laughs) to yeah transition lab was also um the origin of a project that i started um with amaka agbo who was in the transitions lab with us and we started it took us a year but um during transitions lab we talked about the need for um black women in particular and by women we meant we mean like cis women, trans women, gender nonconforming folks, femmes, um, to have space for us to do our own um, healing work toward like liberation so we can like be free black women now. And um, we just celebrated, we called it Black Women's Freedom Circle and we actually just celebrated our um, year anniversary. Wow, I didn't even know about this. Yeah. That's exciting. Yes. <laughs> Good stuff yeah. coming out of the Transitions Lab. Shout out to Movement Seriously. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I feel like we're just going to chat about all the incredible work you're doing. And so I want to first start off with you um, telling us your parenting story. So how do you identify? Tell us about your family, your kiddos. Oh, my goodness. Um, you know, I've never thought about, like, what my parenting identity is. Um, but so I have two kids. I have an 11-year-old, um, no, 12. She just turned 12, a 12-year-old daughter and a 7-year-old son. Um, I was very, very clear that I did not ever want to have children until I was 27. And then, I mean, I can, I remember there being this moment where I almost physically, like, some kind of switch went off in me. I remember I was laying in bed looking at the ceiling, and I was like, I need to have some babies. And um, <laughs> was it was very odd. Um, and knew um, that I was going to become a mom. I actually, I assumed that it would be I'd be unmarried. I'd do it by my, you know I'd be a single mom. Well, um, in the context of community, but I wasn't planning on doing it with a partner. Um, my mom was a single mom. My mother's mother was a single mother. And I think that's just like, you know, how, though I don't think my mother would have ever told me to become a single mother. That was just kind of the, the legacy. I'm also an only child. So the idea of collaborating with somebody on, on child rearing, um, I think was not, 
appealing to me. Um, so I decided um, that I was going to have, that was, and first I thought I was going to adopt kids. And then I met my um, husband and I knew after like three days, I was like, oh, he's totally screwing up my whole plan because um, I'm going to marry him and I'm totally going to have children with him. And we've been together for 15 years and we have these two amazing um, creatures. Um, you know, and you learn a lot from parenting. You learn a lot about yourself. And I think that my, I am, I am a, a deep, um, I have a deep commitment to my own um, path and my own um, uh, life and my own care. And I think that um, I'm not about, I mean, I'm, certainly I think all parents work to, um, you know, we often put our children before ourselves, right? Like lots of part of parenting is about um, self-sacrifice. But I just think it's also really important that my children see me um, prioritizing myself. I feel like I want to model that both for for my, you know, I mean, if we're thinking about the, the kind of gendered nature of parenting and of how people get socialized and for my daughter, it's like, I want to model for her what it means to be a woman in the world who, um, who takes care of herself. And for my son, um, I want him, I want to be modeling for him that um, women are not there to like, to do everything for him. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, his, his female friends or partners in his, in his adult life, like the expectation is that like they are, they are taking care of themselves and like doing their own stuff. So um, that's really important to me. I'm also, I think again, because I'm an only child, um, I'm used to just like doing what it is that I want to do and prioritizing myself. Um, and that definitely comes out in my parenting, but I think generally it's good for my kids to see that. Um, I don't know what else, what else, I don't know. What else do people say about their parenting identity? Well, honestly, people tell different stories at different times to different people. Um, sometimes people just like say their kids ages and that's it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I appreciate you like really spending some time to think about your parenting identity and inviting me to think about my own parenting identity, right? I feel like yeah. there's some similarities between you and I. Um, my son is eight and my stepdaughter is um, 13. And so our kids are like in the same kind of um kind of age range and I feel feel some similarities between the piece around like trying to show my stepdaughter like what it means to be an empowered you know black woman who's strong and is independent and then also like teaching my son early on that like um like that whole idea of gender roles in terms of women do particular things and men do particular things is like crashing that whole dynamic and so Mm -hmm. pushing him to be like to ask him questions about like you know, when he says something is a girl thing or a girl toy or a boy toy, I like push, push him in seeing that, no, that's not really the case. And where do you get these messages from? So yep. really, really cool to have those conversations. Um, I think the piece around self-care that you named for us as parents um, and oftentimes sacrificing ourselves for our children um, and particularly thinking about a lot of the trauma, right, that we experience um, yeah. vicariously through the world or actually um, firsthand, um, particularly as Black parents. How do you, like, how do you do the both and of, like, taking care of yourself and also what I feel like I'm often doing, which is, like, trying to protect my kids, right, which means to yeah. put energy into them, 
which sacrifices ourselves. So like, how do you do the both and? Because it's not an either or. Yeah, and I think that, that mostly um, I've accepted that one, I'm not gonna do any of those things like perfectly, right? Um, and I'm not trying, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm like, eh, <laughs> do a good enough job. Like, <laughs> it don't have to be like all the things. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing that I'm trying to do way more of um, now is is really invite other people into like our circle, right? Um, you know, I am woman and I'm married to a man and we like you know live in a house and we're it's a chain we have a chain link fence, not a picket white picket fence, and we're raising our biological children. Um, and the model that we get sold in America about that is one that like, that's the family structure you should have. And that family um, should be like self-sufficient and independent. And um, that is, that doesn't make any sense. It takes way more than two people to raise children. Um, human beings are pack animals. Like it's not, that setup is just like, like um, it's a, I mean, it's a setup for failure. Um, right. And I think what we see right now is so many folks who they get to that place and, um, you know, you end up with, you got two grownups who are working and they're trying to raise kids and they're like, why is this so hard? Like, what am I doing wrong? And I'm like, you're not doing anything wrong. Like that is a, that setup is a load of crap. Um, so I think for us, like we, you know, we, we've never raised our children by ourselves. We have um both you know kind of uh biological and um chosen family who are uh like significant part of the picture for us so that we can you know who are like picking out taking our kids on like outings or picking them up from school or watching them so we can like do work or go on dates or or whatever um and it's important for us to have that so that we have more time to take care of ourselves but it's also important for our kids to have more that have a you know a, a whole range of adults in their lives um who care for them who show them different ways of being um who introduce them to different things um and i think that you know i feel like we don't even like i would love for us to do an, an even better job of that i think that it's a just given kind of how our culture is it's it's challenging to try to get people um pulled into your circle that way um particularly if they're not um you know biological or or like legal family but i think it's really really important for us to really think expansively about what family is and um make sure that for parents and for kids we have you know this like this this a big a big bunch of folks who are involved in it and i do you know i think you know black folks have a long tradition of doing this i mean I think most of the most of the black adults I know we have, um, you know, aunties or uncles that we didn't find out until we were adults weren't actually the siblings of our parents. Um, right, play aunties. You know, we got people. Play cousins. Yes, like, <laughs> exactly. We have people. We you know we take people in. Um, I was talking to a, a friend the other day who they were going through like family pictures, and they there there are people who were in their family who didn't actually know if they were biological family, like they, just, they didn't know themselves. Um, and I just think that's really beautiful that like they didn't know and they're like, eh, doesn't matter. Um, but that, that thing of having, having these like these expansive, um, this expansive notion of what family is, I think is really, really important for parenting. And it's, it makes me really sad um, 
how how the dominant narrative about family has is really about like kind of replicating the nation state and you have like you know the man um who's kind of in charge of stuff and this idea of independence right um that like we don't instead of interdependence when it comes to family um it's just like is a like i said it's a, a recipe for for disaster in, in many ways um so i'm trying really hard to not do that yeah so you're trying that in your home right um mm -hmm. and you're doing that in your work right so when i think about the work that you're doing with family story it's about shifting and yeah. about what a family is and it's not this only kind of dominant narrative around this nuclear family with the two parents and the two children the dog and the white picket fence yep. that's that's, yep. that's a bunch of crap um yeah so i would love for you to talk a little bit more about your work with family story and yeah i think it also relates to your ted talk right so we can oh, get for to that sure now. yeah yeah so family story exists to um really create a new narrative um one that is not i mean so partly there is this there's this hierarchy in the kind of the dominant discourse around family is that there's this hierarchy um which puts heterosexual nuclear families they're usually white in the <laughs> in, in our imagination um you know they're solidly middle class so they're not they're not like dependent on the state they're independent um they're raising biological children um, and that is seen, that is like deeply embedded in kind of like the American dream, right? You, you go to school, you meet somebody, fall in love, you get married, you have babies, you live happily ever after. Um, and that idea of family as something that people, people think of that as traditional and there's nothing traditional about it. That's not, there was a brief period of time where that was, um, dominant, but even when it was the, even when it was the majority, like it was only a small majority, um, we have always had um different ways of doing families we've always had intergenerational families we've always had queer families we've always had um you know matrilineal families where you had um women raising children with their sisters and their their mothers and you know and not and you know men were gone for whatever reason um we have always had all these different kinds of families and in the last you know 50 60 years we've seen an explosion in that diversity um but because um, we have this narrative that says that this this one kind of nuclear family is the best. All of our all of our uh, our cultural norms and our policies and practices are designed to support that kind of family. And um, you know, there's all of this kind of faulty, um, misguided research that says that kids who grow up in those families and families with two married parents have the best outcomes. Um, and I always say, well. You know, if we look at something like uh, the wage gap, right, um, men um, are clearly doing better in the workplace than women when it comes to income. But we all know that that's not because there's something inherently better about men. We know that because there's this great inequity in terms of like how wages are distributed. Um, so to say that nuclear families are doing better um, because of their, their nuclearness is ridiculous. What we have is a system that's set up to privilege them. Um, so they have, they have the systems, everything works for them. Everybody else has to kind of navigate around. Um, what works best for kids is to have um, people who love them and who are, um, you know, stable parts of their lives and who care for them. What works best for kids is to like have access to really good education and, and stable housing and nutritious food and um, to not be poor. Um, and that doesn't have anything to do with family structure. That has to do with what we prioritize as a country 
and what we've, and decisions we've decided um, or decisions we've made about um, allowing people to be poor or allowing kids to go to crappy schools or allowing um, or penalizing people for the kind of family structure that they have. Um, so a lot of the work that we do is really about telling the like the celebratory positive um, stories about families who are not nuclear families and really framing and understanding that the challenges that those families face collectively don't have anything to do with um, quote unquote bad choices, but has to do with um, the failure of our systems and structures to actually meet the families where they are. Um, and yeah, so that's what I get to do. I get to like, I talk to a lot of people about what their families look like and I tell their stories and we do um, research on like representation of families and attitudes people have towards different family structures so that we can understand um, what kinds of messaging um, we can develop to really shift this narrative and, and, and help more of us think expansively about families. And the other thing I hope that the stories that we tell, um, one of the things I hope they, the stories do is provide like um, a blueprint for other people who are trying to figure it out. I feel like there are a lot of young folks right now, they're like, okay, what my parents did didn't work. Like those people are divorced and it sucked whatever they tried to create. So they're like, I want to do family in a different way, but that we don't have a lot of um, narratives that show people what that looks like. So I'm really hoping that a lot of the stories that we tell show people that there are different ways to, to do family than what they grew up with. And, um, you know, give them some, give them some blueprints, give them some like touchstones and ideas about what it could look like for them so they can create their own kinds of family. Yeah. So it sounds like what you're doing is, is creating is like you're liberating the concept of family right like you are i hope so yes yes you're like liberating this concept to not be this very limited and skewed kind of um heterosexual kind of dominant culture white um vision of a family and so as you're shifting yeah. narrative specifically i'm curious about like well what are you hearing about black families that should that actually are kind of in direct opposition to the narrative. Yes, so black. much like, uh, so, uh, so much nonsense exists about black families. I mean, um, I mean, in black mothers in particular, unmarried, um, low income black mamas are like the most demonized family structure that exists since the since before the Moynihan report, but like very specifically when the Moynihan report came out and y'all should Google that if you don't know what it is. Um, Black women um, have been, it is this very um, patriarchal kind of understanding of what a family should look like. Like black women are blamed for poverty, we're blamed for violence, we're blamed for drug use, all these things that exist in our community, we are blamed for. Um, and the idea is that like, we shouldn't be having babies unless we're, we're married and um, we can't keep a man, right? Um, and on the other side, black men are um, told that they are absent from their children's lives. Um, and this is not actually true. We have lots of data that shows that black men are actually more um, involved parents when it comes to things like um, eating meals with kids or taking them to and from school or spending time doing homework or playing or baths or putting them to bed. Black men are more involved um, parents than men of any other race. Um, so we have these two things that I think one are, are um, their lies, right? Like black women are not causing poverty and drug use and, and violence by um, being single mothers. And black men are also not absent from their children's lives. By the same token, 
Um, I don't, I also don't think that, and this is, I think a little controversial, but like men, fathers are not necessary. Parent, like a specific, a specific, specific gender of parent is not necessary for children. What children need um, is, is people, parents, right, who are involved in their lives. It doesn't matter um, what gender that child is. So, so women can raise healthy, um, self-actualized um, boys, and men can do the same for girls. So there's all of this crap about black families. And I think the, the big thing that is missing um, from the conversation about black families is not, is not about marriage or um, about like people waiting to have kids. But it is it is looking at the the way the ways in which Black people create family, which are expansive, which are um, inclusive of um, people who are who are not necessarily family, but because of blood or law, um, which has always been part of our narrative. Um, that way of doing family um, is way more supportive and loving and caring than other than like a nuclear family. Um, I think about, for example, um, a child who will spend part of their time living with their parents and then may live with like an auntie or a grandparent for a little while and then like go back to their parents' house. And from the like system perspective, right, from like the social service perspective, um, that's often seen as unstable. Whereas what the family is actually doing is moving the child where the most resources are, right? All of all of these people are family to this kid because that's who they've grown up with. They've grown up with their parents. They've grown up with auntie and grandparents and uncles and cousins. Um, so being in a different household is not really, like it's not the thing, right? All of that is family. Um, and what the family's doing is like, okay, during, during this time, maybe it's like, you know, during the summer months, it is better for children to be with the grandparents because it gives their parents a break. And grandparents, they can, they can like hang out with their grandparents because the grandparents are home. They can help the grandparents out um, with chores and things like that, right? This is, I mean, lots of, lots of black folks like go, we send our kids home to the South, right? For the summers and spend time with the grandparents on the farm and like learn how to like pick beans and, and uh, like be in the country. Um, or maybe it's that like a child of a certain age, right? When a kid becomes a teenager, maybe being at home with their parents isn't great because like their parents aren't great with teenagers, but like the mom's uncle, right? Mom's uncle, uncle Joe, like is awesome with teenagers and, um, has room and can use, um, the support of having another, like, like company, right? So they can go live with uncle Joe for a few years while they're a teenager. That doesn't mean they don't ever see their parents again. It doesn't mean there's instability. It means that the, the family is really thinking about like what's best for this child and who has the capacity and resources to give them what they need. And I think that thing about black families, which is often looked at as instability or seen as somehow like dysfunctional or disjointed, is actually the strength of our families. Yeah. And and when I think about like the way you're describing it, it totally sounds like my family um, and my mom, mm-hmm. my mom, you know, growing up, we had so many people in our house every time. Like, I don't know. I feel like I had, we had like three generations living in the same house it would be like 20 people at, at one point, like living in this four bedroom house with two bathrooms, going to the same schools, cousins, yep. everybody goes to the same school. So you show up to school and it's like 20 of you go to the same school. A little pack. Yeah. yeah you're like, Oh, that's, that's those folks. Right. Yep. Um, and, and I, you know, I think about the, you know, the African proverb that it takes a village. And I wonder how much of this is actually ancestrally 
um, our cellular memory to the way that we actually oh, totally. have, and have community, right? Like it wasn't this isolated, like it literally was a village. And so us practicing that now, even here across the diaspora, right? And I think about yep. like how systems actually try to regulate that, right? Like they don't want that. Yep. How you said like the state no. that as like a, a unstable, unstable conditions for a young person to travel and go from one family, from one home to another. Um, and I think about also like growing up, if you lived in um, like federal housing, right? Or governmental housing. Yep. That, like it actually didn't even allow other people to live there. Like you have to. Exactly. Die. Who lives there? Who's on the lease? And you couldn't have the way, yeah. other people come totally. on board because you'd get put out of your home, right? So it was like intentional yep. structuring and limiting families from actually being expansive and extended. Um, yeah. And defining, and defining who actually counts as family. Um, I mean, I think about like how we are disproportionately targeted by the criminal justice system. And then when folks come out of prison, like they can't, they also can't live in federal housing. So we're taking, we're taking primarily men, right? We're stealing them from communities. And then when they are coming back in, right. And they're meant to like reintegrate and find jobs and all this stuff. We are, we are, we are not allowing them to spend time in the place that's going to provide the most stability for them and where they're going to be able to like, you know, see their children and their partners and their and their parents and cousins and siblings um and that and that um yeah that ends up like our, people just don't see like there's there's an invisibility about like the different like nodes of connection that exist in our family because of the way in which um america defines like who counts as family um i mean you know this is true for queer folks too like um there is a long tradition of older um queer adults being basically, you know, not having, having not having, if they didn't have kids, they would be like, like this younger generation of folks who would care for them. But, you know, if I'm, if I'm taking care of like my like adopted queer auntie um, and she gets sick and needs to go to the hospital because we are not like related by blood or law, like I can't take paid family leave for the time that I need to like take care of her when she comes home, you know? So things like that, we, where our systems really don't recognize the ways in which people um, make family, um, end up privileging certain kinds of relationships over others. And obviously, we shouldn't be doing that. Like we should be like the ways in which people make family are are beautiful and and fundamentally supportive and make our whole society function better. So we really ought to be recognizing those relationships and giving people the same kinds of you know, privileges and, and um, benefits that people who are, you know, straight people who are married get. I really appreciate you continuously lifting up um, queer families, because when I think about the homophobia that exists within the Black community. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I think that, that the homophobia exists in all communities. Black folks are yeah. not... <laughs> We do not, not have some kind of, <laughs> we, we are not, um, we don't own that at all. I mean, I think the, the homophobia that exists in, a lot of it, it has to do with religion, right? And there, right. Are, there are lots, lots of evangelical, um, like super um, conservative uh, white folks when it comes to, um, to homosexuality. And what I have, what I have found, and I feel like what I've heard from a lot of black queer people is that, um, you know, in black communities, Everybody, everybody, there's an uncle or auntie and everybody knows they're gay and don't nobody talk about it, right? And they will say homophobic things out loud. But the fact is that they are still um, part of the community, right? There's a way in which we have made, um, we have often made allowances for um, queer people to be part of our communities and stay family, even if, if, if um, 
publicly and outwardly, we're deeply homophobic. So I just want, uh, like, I think there's so, there's so many layers. There's layers and complication in all of that. Um, and I will also say that I think one of, you know, like the, the, the narrative about, or the story about um, women, um, like two women raising really, um, you know, healthy kids, like that also shows up in black families in like, you know, when we, when a woman raises a child with her mom or when sisters are helping to raise um, children together, like the ways in which women raise children, children together doesn't necessarily have to be with romantic partners. It can be with folks who have other kinds of ties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm like, huh, I need to get my sister on board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right. The, sister, the sisterhood of like the sister motherhood um, folks. Yeah. I'm actually curious about um, the organizational work or project that you developed around um, books that you are were reading with yeah. your daughter um, because oh, yeah. education, Kane learning. Row. Kane Rowe. Tell Kane me Row. about Kane Rowe. Yeah. Kane Rowe, um, the, the beginning inkling of Kane Rowe happened when um, I was pregnant with my daughter. And I was thinking about how I wanted to raise this as like, I'm bringing a black girl into the world and I want her to see herself. Um, and I was, cause I didn't see myself, you know, like we don't, we're, we are underrepresented or if we're represented, we're represented very negatively um, through media and, and like historical narrative too. Like I thought about, you know, I was thinking about like, you know, what I got taught in school about American history. So I was like, I want my child to see herself um, in the world. And um, the most obvious way for me to do that, I felt like when she was little, was through kids' books. Um, so um, I, not unsurprisingly, found that it was actually really hard to find um, children's books that represented Black folks. And, um, and particularly if I wanted it to be a book that wasn't about being Black, right? It was like, there was lots of stuff about like how we love our hair or um, how we integrated baseball or um, how we celebrate Kwanzaa, but there wasn't like how we like have a pet dog, but it didn't even say anything. It was just like the character happened to be black. Like we weren't just allowed to like see, we had to be like integrating something or, or like be about our culture. And obviously those books are really important, but I also wanted to just like normalize um, blackness for her. So I spent a ton of time like at the library on, on the like, you know, I'd do a search on Amazon and I would be on the like 20, 20th and 30th page of the search. So not the stuff that came up first, but like the, the stuff that you find at the end of the search um, and just started to like collect all of the, and I would buy all of these um, books and a lot of them were out of print. So I was buying used copies um, and I started to just like create this library and um over the years, as my daughter was getting older, I had friends who would see the library and they were like, oh my gosh, like you write down the names of, you know, people, friends of color who wanted, who wanted to know what the titles were, like a handful of books I'd recommend for them, for their kids, or somebody who had like a nephew um, and would want to know like a bunch of books that, that, that um, they should get for their nephew, or they had a pregnant friend and they wanted to give them a bunch of books. And I expanded, so it wasn't just, um, you know, it wasn't just like books about black folks. It was, it was really books about people of color. Um, and I kept, I kept like re-emailing like various lists. And I was like, oh, really what I should do is I should like put this online someplace. Um, 
so then I was having this conversation about this with my friend Mariah, and we were thinking more, and we started to think more expansively about like, what does it look like to create a resource for people who she's an educator, um, and she's also chosen family. She's my she's my daughter's auntie. Um, but what does it look like to create a resource for people who are working with or parenting kids of color um, that that allows the adults to ensure that these children see themselves in the world? Um, so our Facebook page is primarily um, us posting um, like stories about people of color, both children and adults, who are do doing things like against type, right? So we're not posting about, um, you know, so we're posting about like, you know, Muslim centers, um, but we're not posting about, um, you know, black like athletes. We're posting about like black scientists or, or if it's athletes, it's like people, you know, it's like swimmers, some, some, doing some kind of sport that black people are not known for doing. So we wanted to just like expand, um, allow adults to like have resources that really allowed them to share with children an expanded notion of what it meant to be kids of people of color, kids of color um, in the world. So they could see that like everything is possible for them. Um, so we, and we have like, so on our website, we've got this blog post, we've got our Facebook page, and then I, we created a database of, of about a hundred books um, that are for a pretty broad range of ages that where the main character um, is not the person of color. So no, like, no, like best friends, but like the main character. Um, and I have way more books to put on there, but thankfully what's happened is there has been, um, uh, a lot of awareness about the fact that there is a lack of representation of people of color in, um, children's publishing. And, um, I think, more more books are getting published, but also there there are several different like apps and websites that you can go to now that have these huge databases of um, books that feature people of color. Um, so I feel like we don't even need to keep doing what we're doing anymore. We can keep doing the Facebook page, but I don't need to like finish my my like Google Doc database that exists. Um, but that's Kane Row. Yes, I love it. Yeah, there are there are other folks doing um, similar work. The person who comes to mind is the the I think she was like 11 or 12 um, Marley Dia mm. who did the like yeah 1,000 black books or 1,000 black yep. girls books um, and she was uh, curious about why she couldn't find herself either in books and so yep. has done a lot of work right and just like I sent her I sent her a bunch of books <laughs> awesome <laughs> yeah so I think about the intergenerational piece um yep so I feel like you are drawn to and have a gift of shifting narratives, expanding narratives, and um, pushing beyond the single story um, that exists about whether mm -hmm. children, families, black folks, mothers, um, and just really admire the work that you're doing. And so you just named how you wanted to talk to your daughter and like help her to expand her vision of herself through stories. And so you have posted on Facebook about how you're talking to your, your children um, about Charlottesville and so I'm curious um, how are you how are you having those conversations and how do yeah. you have similar conversations about when racism rears its ugly head in such a right way? yeah yeah so um one of the, so at, first of all I think that like you can't like I didn't start those conversations with my kids around Charlottesville we've been talking about um identity and race and racism since they were little and with my daughter and again, I use, I, I use children's literature as an introduction to a lot of things because I feel like it's, you know, there's images and, and, the, and the stories are short and they provide um, narratives that you can then like kind of build um, upon. So 
I was really like I remembered um, as a kid hearing like the only things I heard about black people were um, like you know we were slaves and then Abraham Lincoln freed us and then like Jim Crow and you know white people just continued to treat us badly and there was a part of me as a kid that was like what's wrong with us that we keep this keeps happening to us and I had no other I had no context to understand that there were other people who had gone through um, or experienced historically had experienced um, similar kinds of discrimination so like I mean, I knew about the Holocaust to some extent, but I don't think I knew the the depth of anti-Semitism that had existed um, in Europe, and um, and I had never heard of the Japanese internment. Um, so, I the way I introduced the idea of kind of systemic oppression to my daughter, right? The idea that like this isn't just about like people saying mean things to each other, but that like a government can um, discriminate, a government can oppress people. Um, was was through a book about um, Japanese internment camp um, because I wanted her to know that this is a, I was like she's going to get plenty of stuff about slavery I want her to know that like bad things have happened to other people too and that the government has done horrible stuff to other people so we started with Japanese internment and then when I introduced the idea of slavery to her we did it through literature that um, focused on what was happening on the African continent and then when we talked about slavery in the United States, it was a book that didn't include any white people, right? It was, it was, it was all about like, um, all those books were about like black people's rebellion and resistance to being oppressed. Um, so I was really, I was very, very thoughtful about kind of how I introduced stories to her about um, oppression. Um, so that when we, and so we would talk about that and we would talk about what was going on and why, um, people were enslaved and like what racism was and what white supremacy was and you know when I mean I started these conversations with her when she was like three um so there was a lot she didn't understand and I tried to be age appropriate and then like they were ongoing conversations so that when things finally came up um like you know Trayvon Martin got murdered or Charlottesville happened like we had some basis for having conversations about that my kids know you know what white supremacy is they know um you know that that there are systems that exist. It's not just about individuals, like, again, saying mean things to each other. And they know, you know, I mean, you know, this is, I think, the one of the big tensions and one of the things I really appreciate about the work that you do is, is like, how do we, how do we talk to our kids about this stuff, right? We don't want to, we don't want to um, not talk about it. We don't want to hide them from it because then they go into the world unprepared. But how do we talk about it without, like, destroying their joy, right? Well, how do we talk about it in ways that don't make them um, bitter or cynical? Um, and I think that's a constant dance. I don't think there is a like an answer to that. I think it really is about just kind of maintaining um, a sense that that's what you're trying to do. So like you want to make sure that you're talking. I mean, partly I don't want my kids to hear about stuff from somebody else, right? I want to tell them about things um, that are happening in the world. Um, and like I try to do it in a way that's like realistic, but not like terrifying. And I also try to make sure that like the other times that they are like, you know, outside being free little black children and running around and, and believe that they can do whatever they want in the world and um, that they don't need to be, they need to know about racism and they need to know about the ways in which um, racism can manifest itself um, that can be dangerous, but they don't need to walk around being afraid, right? Right. Yeah, that is totally a dance. Um, 
Yeah. Like, who? Like, I don't know, like the Cupid Shuffle, like just going back and forth and turning around. Yeah. And, just like, and I don't feel like I got it right, which is why I do this, right? I feel like I, like I just, I learned so much just now talking to you and even hearing the like expanding the narrative beyond um, the oppression of um, Black folks, but also talking about the ways that systems have oppressed other people as well. So yeah, definitely like going to do that now, right? Like I didn't, I hadn't done that before. Um, and I know that my son is curious about like, why, why do they, why did they do so much stuff to, you know, black people? Like, why are they doing this? Yeah. Right. Like, and it could yep. be felt as like, is there something wrong with us? And so, yes. so I don't, I totally don't want that, that, that weight carrying over, um, his head. So I'm going to do that. So I need you to send me the links to those books. I know you have this Google doc, but, oh, with that Google I do, doc. but no, I'll tell you yeah, with that one. I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah talking I feel like in talking with you about this it also just makes you know it's a reminder to me about what it is I'm trying to do because we also just get into the grind of like parenting and work and being being partners and managing a household and um it's, you know it's hard to maintain a a, a kind of awareness and, a t and intention about everything all the time so having these conversations always reminds me of what it is I'm trying to um do with my kids and I will also say I want to give a shout out to um, uh, an organization that has taught me a lot and that has helped me raise my children there's this amazing um, organization here in the Bay Area called Abundant Beginnings um, and I need you to connect me it, I have to reach out to them. oh my oh it's so good it's so good Their work is amazing. so How, can you do a little do a story about what they do because they're incredible yes so um, they are I mean, I will not, it won't be little because I feel like I'll ramble a little bit, but Abundant Beginnings really believes that like, you know, all children should basically experience a liberated life and, and kids should have access to outdoors and they should um, be raised to recognize that they have the ability to um, make positive change happen in the world. Um, so, and, and my introduction to it was through um, like, I think like a spring break camp or something. And they also have summer camps. So I feel like the, the experience my son has, my daughter is now, she's 12 now, so she didn't want to go to camp, but they both had this. But so the experience they had was um, they go to camp, they basically run around and like go fishing and camp outdoors and get filthy, right? They're just like playing. And at the same time, and then like they're also learning about social justice. So this summer, for example, um, my son was part of an action at the park where they were at to um, make the bathrooms gender neutral. So um, they, the kids learned about um, gender and about gender identity. And there are kids in the camp who are trans, there are kids in the camp who are gender non-conforming. Um, and they, um, and they, or they like created this whole plan to make the bathrooms like, you know, which had like a woman symbol and a man symbol on the doors to make them gender neutral bathrooms and all the kids had different roles. Um, and so, you know, when my kid came home from camp, we were talking about something and he was just like schooling me on like, and correcting me about, um, about gender and gender identity. And I just, I love that. Like, I love that he comes home completely filthy and schooling me about like gender identity. And they have talked, they talk about um, police violence. They talk about race and racism. They talk about the environment. Um, so they're really like, it's, it is like the whole like um, social justice um, spectrum. 
and they really um, center um, black kids and, and black children's experience. So for, um, for Juneteenth, um, all of the black kids got to go to this action that was about reclaiming land. Um, and the kids, the, the adults had gone like, you know, the morning before at like 3 a.m. to like liberate this abandoned lot by like cutting down the chain link fence and like, you know, getting rid of all the trash and the like overgrown weeds. And then they brought in a play structure that the kids painted and they like built a wall and planted some plants. Um, and then like, you know, they had a whole conversation about land and they talked about indigenous folks and how land was stolen from them. And they talked about how important land is for um, black folks and like being able to raise your own food and have a place where your home is and stuff like that. So um, I feel like the things that, and this is like, I feel like Abundant Beginnings is part of the village that I have. And I feel like they um, are able to teach my kids things that I wouldn't necessarily have um, a grasp of um, because that's what they do is like talk age appropriately to children about, um, you know, oppression and liberation and, and justice. Oh, can I tell one more story? Go for it. But I just um, want to say like, I need you to connect me to Abundant Beginnings because I want to go there. Oh, I'm like, I just want to go oh there my God, I know. myself, really? right? <laughs> me too. They also, they usually when there's some kind of, um, like there's going to be a rally on um, this weekend against white supremacy and they do all, they do teach-ins with kids. Um, so whenever there's like a big rally in the Bay Area around, around um, some kind of social justice issue, they are often doing um, a teach-in with the kids and the kids will like make signs. And my son has been in like multiple um, you know, parade, like not parades, protests. Um, so one of my favorite stories was that um, over, it must, I think it was a spring break or a winter break camp and they were learning about police brutality um, and systems of policing. And um, the kids, they, they spent, they spent the whole week kind of like learning about different pieces of it. And then, and they always, they always do something very liberatory and very resistance oriented. So a lot of it is about like, you learn about these oppressive systems, but then you're also learning about ways in which to resist them and rebel against them and create more liberation for people. Um, so the kids feel, I think, very empowered to like make change happen in the world. And so at the park, they saw, and this is, this is a spring break camp with like two to, two to six year olds. My son was like one of the oldest kids there. And the kids saw um, a cop stop a black man on a bicycle and they all got together and started yelling with like fists in the air, no justice, no peace, leave that black man alone. And kind of like started marching toward the scene. And I can oh, only imagine. Incredible. <laughs> right. I can only imagine for both like the, for the, for the cop to be like called out by like these big babies, call this calling you out for like I mean you know and I have no I don't know why the, the dude got stopped but like calling you out and for this black man I'm I'm just thinking about like like what it what it must have meant to have these children these teeny tiny children come to your defense right mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. I mean it just like that is so beautiful to me the idea that, that there's this like adult man on his bicycle having to deal with the cops and all of these babies like come up and they're like, leave that black man alone. Like no justice, no peace. Wow. Um, that is incredible. And I just think that's so beautiful. And I love that like they, they saw this thing happening that they had been, that they'd been like talking about kind of, you know, somewhat abstractly for children, right? They've been having a conversation about it and that they were able to take, um, what they had learned and their feelings about it. Right. And like put it into action. 
and they they but they felt empowered to as as children um they were like that's not right it's like you can't do that and we gonna tell you about it and they just like descended upon the scene and um and said what needed to be said and i just like you know they weren't going to ignore it they weren't going to like walk away which is what i think of a lot of adults do right we pass by things that we know aren't right, right. And we don't know what to do about it or we feel like we don't want to get involved or whatever right. and these babies just were not they were not having it and i just like i love that so much and i feel like that's the that is the kind of um education and um kind of a place of an environment for children to empower themselves that abundant beginnings um create so i just have to i realize i'm totally like doing a little commercial for them but um partly i feel like it's, it's a way of being that more people could be doing um if they thought about it like children are able to understand really complex things and put things into action we're not abundant beginnings isn't trying to train children to be like activists as adults. They're like, you actually can do things to change your world right now. And I really right. appreciate that. I do too. So we gotta make, we gotta figure out ways to um, replicate abundant beginnings in multiple cities. And oh my I, goodness. I am down to be, yes. to go get trained. I'm like, how do I do this? So I'm coming, I'm coming yes. to, to learn. Um, Cause Yay. I do have a vision of like, build a collective, right? Our co-op or community of parents who are trying to be liberatory. Um, who are like fighting for liberation and also want to parent from a place of liberation and like what if we oh, get that idea yeah. like how you said like families don't have to be like in these separate houses so there was like yep. a, there was like this thing that came up on my Facebook feed about like um, I think it was like 10, 10 motels that were like being sold like that like in California right and so I was looking them up uh -huh. like, where they were and they were like you know half a million dollars a million dollars whatever but I was like my vision in media was like, oh my goodness, this could be like a liberatory space, like where we live. Yeah. Oh my god! I and mean, like for for a motel, like half a million dollars. I mean, I don't it's know what they're in, but like, I mean, that's how much you know a cost in a I house like, in like, cost like ten years ago. What kind of capital fundraising could I do to purchase this? Right. So that's where my brain went. Mm -hmm. it's like, what what would it look like to create? and practice liberation on a day-to-day -day basis and not just with our kids but in community right like thinking about family stories about like how do we expand the narrative of like what is a family what is a parent who are we parenting and that we are parenting each other's kids we're parenting each other yep always growing and developing so yes shout out to abundant beginnings i'm trying to get up there so i can learn and be in community and there's been so many people right who whose yeah. kids have either went there or who just say like oh my goodness you should hear about them and what they're doing so big up to abundant beginnings yeah well i think we're at our time um you have anything else you want to share i think that's it but thank you for starting this podcast and for having the conversations and for encouraging us to think about um what liberated parenting looks like um yeah i just think i feel like you know we're making this up as we go along like that's just <laughs> That is definitely what this is. I feel like I certainly am. And I love that there's uh, like little groups of pockets of people who are who are making it up along with me. Yes. And trying to figure it out. And every day is a journey. Yep. So thank you so much yep. for the work you're doing, for the way that you're parenting and the way that you're living and being um, liberated um, as a state of being in your everyday life. Really appreciate you. And um, I'll connect with you soon. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Bye. Thanks.